At a recent conference in Lancaster County, Dr. W. Robert Godfrey announced the end of Christendom, and he went beyond that and said there is something liberating about the collapse of Christendom. Here are his words. I would argue that there is something, maybe not everything, but something liberating about the end of Christendom, where Christians no longer need to be in the position of being coercive and go back to what I would say is the original Christian stance, namely, that we seek to be persuasive. Dr. Godfrey has announced the collapse of Christendom, and as addressed previously on this podcast, he makes a case that Christendom was marked with coercion. Well, what is coercion, and is it always bad? Webster defined coercion as a restraint or check, particularly by law or authority, compulsion or force. Now, let's start by saying that Dr. Godfrey would surely agree that coercion is a necessary and good thing in our world. For example, when a mother uses her parental authority to forcefully prevent a toddler from running out into the street or spanking a child for biting his sibling, a coercive check has been placed on the actions of the child. The Bible, of course, praises this type of coercion. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Let's go to another level. Dr. Godfrey would also surely agree that the local church can use its authority or law, to excommunicate a church member for unrepentant sin. Finally, let's consider the larger society and the civil government, an area that Dr. Godfrey seemed to focus on in his lectures. Surely Dr. Godfrey would agree that a society can use the coercive power of the law to restrain or check murderers and thieves, for example. I know Dr. Godfrey is familiar with Romans 13, where the Bible describes the civil ruler as God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Bearing the sword as a civil magistrate is coercive, and undeniably so. But again, the Bible praises this type of coercion as well. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Now, unless Dr. Godfrey wants to reject all those uses of coercion, what is he actually opposing? Well, here is what he said. There was a coercive power the state could use to enforce aspects of Christianity. For a lot of the history of Christendom, now we're talking about almost 1,500 years of history, the state used its coercive power to stop people from getting a divorce. The state used its coercive power to arrest and punish homosexuals. Do we think that we would like to see restored the coercive power of the state to enforce Christianity? Here's the rub. I doubt Dr. Godfrey really has a problem with all coercive power in the civil realm. For example, I think he would agree that murderers should be executed. But he does have a problem with the state enforcing, quote, aspects of Christianity. But what are those aspects to which he refers? As mentioned previously, ambiguity was one of the hallmarks of this lecture series, and what Dr. Godfrey means by aspects of Christianity is unclear. It appears that sodomy and adultery or divorce are aspects of Christianity in Godfrey's mind rather than ethical actions taken in society that warrant a civil penalty. Now, many Christians, Reformed or otherwise, would rightly argue that civil laws against murder, theft, and kidnapping, for example, are indeed aspects of Christianity in the sense that the law of God is the standard of justice for all time. And Jesus did not come to abolish 
that eternal law of God. In fact, only the truth of Christianity can justify the goodness and righteousness of laws against murder, theft, and kidnapping. Dr. Godfrey should explain why murderers should be punished if the ethical aspects of the Bible are not meant to be enforced by the kings of the earth. If Psalm 2 is wrong, and I speak as a fool, and the kings of the earth are not meant to obey Christ, then what standard do they appeal to? Natural law? Even Godfrey said there were problems with that. Now, Godfrey is doing all that he can to avoid saying one thing. The law word of God is the standard for all actions in every sphere of life, including the civil realm. And to do so, he conflates the duty of the civil magistrate with the duty of the church. For example, he says this, Jesus, I don't think, ever once said, believe what I'm saying or I'm going to lock you up. It was always, believe what I say because it's true and it's good for you. And I think the church is sort of back in that place where we have to say to the world around about us, listen to Jesus because what he says is true and it's good for you. And if we're going to go forward, that's what we need to do. Godfrey also referred to Abraham Kuyper, and he would do well to consider Kuyper's sphere sovereignty. Kuyper went so far as to say that the supremacy of God must be constitutionally recognized in a nation. Kuyper also said that God's word gives us fixed ordinances for our national existence and for our social life together. Kuyper clearly called for a national confessing of Christ as King and Lord in both the political and social arena. Where does this fit with Godfrey's vision of society? The idea of sphere sovereignty, as I think it is properly applied and understood, is that each sphere of society is distinct from the others, and yet they all fall under the kingship of Jesus Christ. The family is under Christ's lordship, and the parents are only authorized to use coercion in the home, spanking, as directed by Christ in the Bible. The church is also under Christ's lordship, and churches are only authorized to use coercion in the church, excommunication, as directed by Christ in the Bible. And the civil government is under Christ's lordship as well, and is only authorized to use coercion in society, execution, restitution, as directed by Christ in the Bible. This is sphere sovereignty. Each sphere is distinct, but each sphere is beholden to God and the ethical requirements of his word. And as it concerns the church and the state, or the church and civil government in particular, Greg Bonson summarized it well. Quote, the point then is that church and state can be separated with respect to function, instrument, and scope, and yet both be responsible to God. The Lord rules not only his church, but also his world. It is simply unscriptural to argue that the state should be indifferent to God's righteous direction, and that direction is found in his law. So coercion has its place in every sphere. And here's what Dr. Godfrey and other prophets of Christendom's doom need to understand. Only biblical law places checks and restraints on abuses of power in any of those spheres. Only God's law checks statism. If Dr. Godfrey is concerned with an abuse of coercion by the state or any sphere, he needs to speedily return to God's law word and call for the advance of Christendom rather than casually announcing its collapse. And Dr. Godfrey, by equating coercion with Christendom, is lulling Christians into the dangerous delusion that an abandonment of Christendom will mean less coercion. I think 60 million dead babies, 
butchered not by the persuasion of abortionists, but by the coercive power of paganism, should give us a hint that this is utter folly. The law word of God is the bulwark against statism and all illegitimate uses of coercion. It is the only transcendent standard that places a limit or a check on what the civil government may do. Unwittingly or not, Dr. Godfrey is sawing off the very branch he is sitting on when he remonstrates against coercion and simultaneously celebrates the end of Christendom. Concerning Idolatry A brief word is in order concerning the biblical laws against idolatry. Some will argue that God's law makes false belief a civil crime, and applying God's law will result in arresting people over what church they attend. However, I think this is erroneous. The first two of the Ten Commandments address the sin of idolatry. In the Bible, the civil sanction against idolatry appears to be limited to seditious cases of idolatry. In a rightly ordered society, the highest authority is not Congress, the people, the president, or a man-made constitution, but the triune God of Scripture. Thus, leading people away from the true God via idolatry might properly be considered akin to treason, a capital offense in modern America. And by the way, I don't hear any Christendom-hating leftists arguing against the coercive power of the state to deal with those January 6th baddies. After all, in their eyes, they are treasonous traitors and ought to hang, every last one of them. Justice, or maybe a word with less of a Christian heritage, demands it. Ah, yes, democracy demands it. That's it. Democracy demands those treasonous traitors rot in a status prison, just as democracy demands that babies can be butchered at will in Ohio. But back to our point. Though treason against the highest authority in the, of the land is punishable under biblical law, general unbelief is not punishable by the civil government, and non-Christians would not face civil penalties for believing in false gods. As James Jordan said, Biblical law does not require the execution of those who hold to other religions, only if they actively promote their anti-Christian views and thus try to destroy the Christian republic does the Bible teach that action should be taken against them. And just for the sake of further clarity, here is how Dr. Kenneth Gentry explains Deuteronomy 13 and the law against idolatry in society. First, it should be noted at the outset that the framing of the law in Deuteronomy 13 has in view solicitation and seduction to idolatry. It does not have in mind personal unbelief or even personal rejection of faith in Jehovah God. Those who assume that this law would inevitably draw the state sword into church discipline for unbelief are mistaken. In point of fact, unbelief in Israel was not punishable by death. Second, in Deuteronomy 13, we have what is in essence the framing of a law against treason. There's more to say on that, but I refer you to Dr. Gentry's book, Covenantal Theonomy, and also my book, Seven Statist Sins. But one final point is worth making here. The church is indeed to be persuasive in calling on the kings of the earth to submit to Christ and his law and enforce justice. We could wish Dr. Godfrey had used his voice for that, rather than falling for the myth of decline and almost celebrating what he calls the end of Christendom. Certainly, we cannot say he lamented it. To dismiss all coercion and then give the false impression that any application of biblical ethics in the civil sphere is melding of church and state is wrongheaded and unhelpful. Well, there's much more to come on this, so stay tuned and send in your questions. 
part two of our analysis of Dr. Godfrey's lectures on the end of Christendom, where I will be joined by local pastor Joel Saint and other men to spend over an hour digging into Godfrey's proposed solution, will be released soon. Until then, check out our other episodes, send in your questions, and remember, Christ, not man, is king. So long. <laughs>